Okay, we're on to our second episode of the PhD podcast, hosted by myself, Jason Abadijan, and my colleague and roommate, Harjeev Singh. Uh, we have Jeb Struder on with us today. Uh, I know Jeb personally for the, the past couple years. Uh, we both uh, were at Michigan State, actually at a sports performance center uh, under Dr. Joe Eisenman, and that's where uh, Jeb and I first connected. Um, Jeb just recently completed his master's degree from Texas Corpus Christi and also just finished his first year of his PhD at UConn in the Corey Stringer uh, Institution. Um, Jeb, welcome. Thanks for uh, being on with us. If you'd like to just share a little bit more information about yourself and kind of your background. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks, Jason. Thanks, Harji, for uh, having me on. Um, definitely miss the whole MSU days. feel like I'm like an adopted Spartan at this point. Yeah, you are. Uh, from you my are. experiences there with you and Dr. E. Um, but yes, so before I got to Michigan State, I um, got my, un my undergrad degree at East Carolina University, where I received my bachelor's in exercise physiology and my minor in nutrition. And I graduated with uh, magna cum laude honors. Um, after that, as we kind of met up, uh, Jason, at MSU, I spent some time with Spartan Performance, um, where I acted as a sports performance specialist, worked in the clinic, worked at our local high schools. Um, honestly, it was probably very instrumental to where I am today, to be honest. That was the, probably the best experience I could have asked for, especially coming right out of college. And then after my time at MSU, I decided to go back to college, and I received my master's from Texas A&M Corpus Christi. Um, where I worked under Dr. Daniel Newmeyer, Dr. Heather Webb, and Dr. Michaela Boham. And after that, I just, I just got to UConn. So I just, as you kind of said, I finished my first year, my PhD. And uh, I'm under Dr. Casa uh, with the Corey String Institute. So tell us uh, a little more about your current role at KSI, kind of what, what you're doing right now. What do you guys have on the horizon? I know things have been, you know, you know, slowed down, obviously, because of the Yeah, this whole COVID-19 situation has been a little pain in the rear for everybody. Um, so my position with the Corey Stern Institute is uh, actually just got a promotion. I'm now the oh, director of research uh, for the Corey Stern Institute. Um, so as a PhD student, you know, it's one of the interesting things, especially with working with Dr. Costa and KSI, is that with KSI being a nonprofit organization, um, we kind of have a, a unique opportunity to work as both a academic graduate assistant and also kind of within a business atmosphere because we are working with a lot of corporate sponsors um, in addition to receiving, you know, government grants and things of that nature. Um, so for me as a director of research, um, basically I work with my colleagues uh, who have been amazing uh, so far in my experience and my transition to UConn. Um, and I assist them with uh, IRB submissions, working with the IRB on behalf of KSI, um, working with our senior staff in regards to uh, creating protocols for our, uh, for our studies, uh, the upkeep of the lab, the, uh, the system of the labs, and just kind of making sure everything's kind of working cohesively. Um, in regards to research, you know, obviously with COVID-19 and having human-to-human -human research, uh, a lot of things got shut down very quickly. Um, I think our initial shutdown day was like March 18th, like right before spring break. So right, right, it was pretty good timing. Um, but we haven't had any research of, as of yet. Um, Connecticut has set some basic uh, preliminary guidelines for reopening of the state. Um, and UConn being a state organization or state institution has adopted these guidelines. So right now we're considered to be in phase two 
for research revamping, uh, which started on May 20th, actually, which basically involves um, non-human to human research and so more cell lines, things of that nature, already uh, research that's going on in regards to either ventilator creation, uh, COVID-19 vaccinations, things of that nature. Um, obviously with being with KSI uh, and our human to human research, we're not really a part of that group. Um, we are working on creating a COVID-19 safety uh, return protocol for our staff and for our undergrad students and our, uh, and our subjects. Um, once that is created and submitted and submitted to UConn OVPR, um, hopefully can I get the ball rolling. Um, we're looking at potentially summer, but it really depends on how the process goes. So right now, catching up on manuscripts, uh, working on IRB submissions, working on grant submissions, trying to find some good collaborators and trying to catch up with friends. Be before the, the shutdown occurred, what were, what were some of the, the, the research lines your, your lab was focusing on and is continuing to focus on once you guys are resuming research activities? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so for me personally, I was working on one project. I was pretty much the senior staff um, for that project. We were looking at a, uh, a device, um, a, a new technology that could be used for potentially um, uh, looking at concussions, uh, whether it's uh, diagnosing them or helping with the symptomology for clinicians. Um, so it's a it's it's an, a, a secondary study that they're doing. So they actually did one with us probably two or three years ago, mm -hmm. and they're adding in new modalities for the concussion assessments. We're using it for a population of I believe it's 13 to 50 years old. Um, so we're looking at sports concussions and kind of regular day-to-day -day activity concussions. Um, so that was going on, and obviously now it's been shut down, so we're trying to get that revamped back up. Um, we obviously have a lot of things going on in the heat lab. Um, one of Dr. Costa's main passions is um, uh, prevention and safety from um, heat stress and, uh, and, and heat responses and thermoregulation. Um, so one of, some of the things we have going on in the lab would be working with some military organizations in regards to new wearables and new technology uh, to help with potentially uh, looking at devices for core temperature measurements. Uh, we also have some stuff going on with um, cooling modalities that could be implemented in the near future. And then we also have Atlas, uh, which is our athletic training location services. Um, which has been run wonderfully by Dr. Huggins, Dr. Stearns, and our new PhD uh, uh, graduate, Kelly Coleman. Um, and uh, this has basically been used um, just to try and get a better networking communication system with all um, athletic trainers and making sure that athletic training services are being provided uh, for as many high school populations as possible. That's really, that's really awesome. It's really, yeah, you mentioned a lot of things you know, given your role and what you get, what you're doing in your first year, it seems like there's a lot of collaboration, a lot of working with different team members. I think those are really great experiences to have as a first year PhD student being able Absolutely. to yeah. have and a lot of Absolutely. Yeah. It's very integrative as well. Yeah. It's What's very that? integrative. We're looking at athletic trainers. Uh, we're looking at, um, we're looking at thermoregulation responses. We're looking at safety for war fighters and laborers and the general male or female that are working out in a hot or extreme, extreme environment. Um, so yes, it's very collaborative. It's very integrative, um, which is definitely one of the things that kind of drew me to the Corey Institute. Yeah. So tell us, so you sent over one of the requirements that we have our, our guests do uh, prior to coming on to the podcast is to send over an article that really 
kind of piqued their research interest. And the one that Jeb sent over, and we'll, we'll link this into our show notes, it's, and again, Jeb, correct me if I'm wrong in the pronunciation of this, it's transcriptomic profiling of skeletal muscle adaptations to exercise uh, and inactivity. It's by Hillen et al. Could you explain just a little bit, kind of give us a little general overview of that article and kind of how it relates to, to your specific research interests? Yeah, absolutely. So um, transcriptomic profiling is basically uh, enveloped in these, this new technological advancement uh, associated with the omics. So basically the omics is in regards to your genetic profile. So you can look at DNA, so your nuclear, your nuclear DNA, which is in regards to your genomics and your epigenomics, your RNA, which is associated with transcriptomics and non-coding RNA analyses, and your proteins, which is basically associated with your proteomics. And finally, your small molecules is basically a metabolomics. So the omic technologies encompasses all of these. And this specific paper looked at the transcriptomics of skeletal muscle. Um, basically, the transcription process is, is looking at the foundational um, protein responses of skeletal muscle. Um, for this specific paper, it was looking at, uh, it was actually a meta-analysis on the responses of exercise, both acute and resistance exercise. Um, as we know with skeletal muscle, it's a very plastic uh, organ, right? I mean, when we're, we're consistently providing different stresses, internal and external, um, which is going to allow for different responses, whether it's uh, looking at your mitochondrial function, looking at insulin sensitivity, looking at um, even myokine release. Um, and these all have, in some regard, a association with your genetic uh, profile, your genetic, genetic makeup. So basically with transcriptomic profiling, it's allowing uh, a different viewpoint of how your muscles are responding to these different exercise protocols we're, we're providing for our, either our athletes or our patients or even just yourself. Yeah, Jeb, so uh, with that said, um, can you describe a little bit what the sort of general genetic response is to exercise? Yeah, so when we're looking at the general response, um, there's a lot of different, uh, there's the general response is an abundance of different things, whether it's looking at your glucose response, so glucose uptake, um, whether it's the, the movement of the GLUT4 trans, uh, transport in regards to its sensitivity of insulin, um, if we're looking at kinase activity, um, if we're looking at um, the metabolic flexibility, uh, looking at like lipid metabolism or um, your um, mitochondrial function uh, with the oxidative uh, phosphorylation complexes. Um, and these are basically so both associated with both acute um, aerobic and resistance exercise. Mm. Um, and it's, it's basically just a lot of different responses um, kind of all, all mashed up under one. Is there, is there any sort of, um, does with the exercise, does it depend like on what, like what are some of the factors with exercise that could potentially have an influence on the genetic profiling or response? Well, the response could definitely depend on, um, the training aspect of the actual individual. So an untrained versus a trained individual could have definitely, um, uh, modifications of their responses. Um, there's been a couple papers that have come out where a untrained individual will have a greater transcriptom transcriptomic response in skeletal muscle, but the factor is is that what researchers are kind of looking at is uh, that bigger transcriptomic response, is that really necessary 
uh, when we look at those responses compared to a trained individual who has a smaller transcriptomic response and what they're what they're hypothesizing, what they're wondering is that, is this based off of maybe the sensitivity of skeletal muscle and a potential adaptation to repeated um, responses to exercise or um, repeated um, involvement of exercise. Um, additionally, if we're looking at the intensity of the exercise, the mode of the exercise, I'm sure we all know, um, different mode may provide different forces uh, on your skeletal muscle that may uh, provide for different responses. Um, intensities as well. Um, we could even go internal, whether it's based off of age, um, whether it's based off of your, your metabolic profile, maybe uh, different chronic diseases. There's a lot of things that could potentially um, be involved in the adaptation of the skeletal muscle. Awesome. So the paper identified uh, something called, uh, and we, this, was, this paper was extremely uh, uh, well-written, and I think uh, it was- I love it really informative uh, it, it identified uh, something called the N and the nr4a3 as one of the most exercise and inactivity responsive genes um, can you explain a little bit about the relationship between exercise and um, the nr4a3 yeah so nr4a3 stands for the nuclear receptor subfamily 4 group a member 3 um, and basically what the paper found is that um, it's the uh, most acute aerobic and exercise responsive gene, and it's actually inversely regulated by inactivity. Um, so a couple of the things that it's been associated with uh, has been glucose uptake. So what they did, again, in the meta-analysis, what they saw was that when the skeletal muscle was involved in electrical pulse stimulation, um, the only gene that was measured that responded to this pulse stimulation was NR4A3. And what they found that was interesting was that this stimulation was involved in glucose uptake and uh, myotubes tubes of the actual skeletal muscle. Um, so that was definitely one huge aspect that kind of relates to the metabolic profile of skeletal muscle. Um, additionally, when this specific gene was uh, silenced, which, meant, which means that basically it was um, taken out of the genetic composition of the skeletal muscle, it wasn't allowed to actually respond to the, uh, to the extra stimulation. Um, NR4A3 silencing was correlated with, um, uh, with oxygen consumption. Um, so basically it was actually decreased with the uh, basal maximum oxygen consumption. And uh, this could be associated with um, oxidative phosphorylation complexes in regards to the mitochondrial function. So um, NR4A3 in kind of a summation is that you looked at the central, regu central regulator of acute aerobic and exercise and um, it's inadvertently or inversely regulated by inactivity. So does it, does it have a role in terms of like atrophy or like we see in certain like pathogenesis of certain like neurodegenerative diseases? Like is there a more pronounced effect uh, in, those, in those modalities with NR4A3? Um, in regards to atrophy, I mean, it is associated with, um, let's see. Let me just look through my notes here. Um, that's actually a great question. Um, I do know that it is associated with myostatin, uh, which is definitely an inhibition or inhibitor on a skeletal muscle, uh, increase in skeletal muscle mass. Um, so when NR4A3 is upregulated, myostatin is downregulated, and that kind of really uh, goes back to the inactivity portion of this gene. Um, so that could be involved in the atrophy complex. Um, so, uh, maybe in that regard, that could be some of a stretch. Um, but besides that, this, with the 
the relatively new aspect of this technology, uh, there's a lot more questions in regards to answers at this time. Right. That seems like what everybody says is the more <laughs> yeah. space we find out, the more questions that we have, and then we just keep going further. That's basically job us. security, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> so, so Jeb, tell us a little bit about, you know, this paper and how it relates to like your specific research interests and kind of what, if anything, you want to take from this paper, you know, going forward with, you know, some of your research lines and things like that. Yeah, so being being a young uh, young and kind of initial career researcher, uh, my interests are, are somewhat a little broad, but I am trying to find my niche within skeletal muscle physiology. And one of the things that has really caught my attention is the genetic composition of skeletal muscle and just the 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 relatively different questions that we can ask and potentially answer um and how this could be altering for a lot of different things whether it's personalized medicine or looking at how we um analyze exercise responses um so in regards to my interests um i am interested in a lot of different things with skeletal muscle um, i'm looking at skeletal muscle transcriptomics uh myokine responses within skeletal muscle so again, more of a immune, immune response and potential resiliency and protectiveness for skeletal muscle, uh, looking also at cytos cytoskeletal uh, protection, especially HSP-72 regulation with, um, in response to extreme environmental um, stimulation. Um, and also we're looking at uh, myogenesis and satellite cell activation. Uh, so looking at, again, skeletal muscle morphology and how it may respond to uh, different exercise stimulation. Um, so with this, this is uh, admittedly kind of a, a different avenue from what Corey Stringer Institute has kind of provided. Um, you know, they, they do provide great services uh, for our basically worldwide, to be honest. Um, but what I think the goal was for Dr. Costa bringing me in and what I'm hoping for is to try and provide more of a basic outlook of our, of our studies and provide maybe more of a cellular molecular aspect of our of our designs and, and even of of our uh, of what we're maybe offering for our community and uh, also drawing different bridges with different labs here at UConn. You mentioned um, and it sounds you know extremely interesting all you know looking at it from the cellular level and how it relates to different you know adapt adaptations and environments. One of the things that you mentioned was like extreme stimulation. What's like, what are examples of that? Is that like extreme heat exposure, like cold exposure? Like what is? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great question. Thanks for bringing that up. So, you know, again, one of the things that Dr. Casa is very interested in, very passionate about is heat acclimation, heat climatization. Um, one of his personal stories is that when he was younger uh, running marathons, he actually suffered from a heat stroke. Um, so, I mean, again, there's a lot of ways of finding your niche and finding your passion and you know, that's, that's the way he found his passion. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, with being such a passionate individual and, and wanting the best for other, other people, he's kind of set his life work, life's work in trying to find safe ways and preventative ways of dealing with uh, heat stroke. Um, so with our lab, we have one of the, one of the better uh, heat labs in the world, uh, some of the best high-tech information provided by a lot of our different sponsors. Um, and we're able to provide uh, a heat lab that allows us to get temperatures, I think, to 105 degrees uh, Fahrenheit and humidity of, of about 50% relative humidity. Um, and that just allows for, you know, uh, proper ways of measuring whether it's 
um, internal temperature, skin uh, thermoregulation, uh, sweat rates, sweat electrolyte uh, distribution, um, performance decrements, things of that nature. Um, that's kind of the extreme environment, the extreme stimulation that we can provide here at UConn. Can, can you simulate some of those same responses through just like internal workloads? Like say an individual was, you know, in a normal, and I say normal, like a 75 degree type of environment in their exercise, there's their extreme level of exercise. You know, mm -hmm. say they're doing, you know, CrossFit type of stuff. They're doing, they're doing hang cleans till they can't do them anymore. Would that, sure. would that elicit like similar responses to the, the heat condition? So when, when you say similar responses, uh, are you looking at more of like the, the core temperature and things like that? Like what, what do you, can you just kind of describe what you mean by the, the yeah, let's, let's go with like the, some of the physiological or maybe even potentially like the molecular responses to that. I mean, potentially, I mean, if we're looking at, you know, heat acclimation, heat climatization, you know, one of the things that we have to have, especially from a lab standpoint is that we have to have that generalizability, you know, what happens in the lab where we're hoping uh, we'll be able to, to protect what's happening outside of the lab. Um, so, so yes, it would be suspected that someone that is doing fatigable work in a extreme environment, if we're looking at maybe you know, someone working out in the Southeast in the middle of July, or maybe look at a football player in the middle of July doing two a days, uh, looking at continual work, high intensity work, uh, very fatiguing work. Uh, these are some of the high risk individuals that we're hoping to protect. And uh, yes, these similar cellular molecular uh, uh, responses could be occurring along with these increases in, um, in thermoregulatory responses. And it's certainly something to consider, you know, moving forward as, you know, athletes and individuals start transitioning back into sport, right? Mm -hmm. and exercise yes, especially at this time with COVID-19. Right. Um, that's one thing, whether it's not even from a heat acclimation standpoint, but just from coming back and return to play. Um, oh. I know there's been a lot of verbiage on social media from the experts, especially in strength conditioning of just protecting players and just knowing that it's been you know, potentially 25 plus days since they had their last game, last practice, they may have been able to work out at home. They may not have. So um, definitely one of the key components of this is going to have to be looking at the environment they're, they're going to be introduced to because um, we're all kind of getting into those, those summer months. Yep. Yeah. It's uh, every time we talk about just, just extreme heat, I always think about just football players. I don't know why it's just yeah. uh, they, well, especially, they just go through such a grueling sort of off season and summer, and it's like, and, and yeah, I mean, you hear it all the time, right? Player, this player uh, collapsed on the field, you know, player that happened to this player, to, and even at a young age too. I mean, it happens at all ages. Um, so it's uh, it's pretty it's pretty great that you're you're trying to you know really uh, understand this research a little bit more. Um, I think one of the questions that we also uh, had was. You know, what, what do you think one of the more practical takeaways uh, is for someone that can, you know, really take your expertise and then apply it to their own daily life or practice or whatever it may be? Mm -hmm. You know, honestly, I saw this question and I love this question because it's, it's some of the, it's one of the things where, again, as, as a, as a young professional, I sometimes struggle with because you, you see these new technologies and you see these fancy things and you see all these really cool questions, but the, the end of the day, 
the biggest thing is, okay, why does this matter? How can I apply it to my everyday life? And I think that's, again, one of the things that really kind of drove me towards the Corey Stern Institute is that they have a very practical application. And a lot of the things that they put out research-wise or um, even uh, with, with different um, applications in regards to research uh, can be life-altering. Yeah. Um, so I kind of sat down and I, and I thought about this. And, and one of the things that um, I've talked a lot about, especially with my, with my advisors here at UConn is, is the, the genetic profile for everybody is, is somewhat different. Everybody has some sort of modifications in their, in their genetic scheme, right? Unless you have a, a identical twin of that nature, everybody is quote unquote unique. Your mother was right. Um, but you know, with that being said, when we're looking at some of these, these, uh, fads or supplements or these kind of these blanket statements where this certain thing works for everybody, we have to take this into consideration because for some people it won't. For the majority it may. And, you know, when that's the case, you know, it's, it's a great thing to have on the market. It's a great thing to be able to offer for either patients or, uh, or subjects or athletes or, or what have you, but there may be a select few where this, that doesn't work for them. And we have to understand why. And that kind of gets into this new regime of like personalized medicine that was really kind of started in like the Obama administration. Um, and it's also kind of provided a lot of different um, outlets for, for jobs for geneticists because it's a lot for collaboration with different clinicians where we are looking at the genetic profile and how this may uh, be associated with um, different pharmacological interventions. And what I'm excited for is that now it's kind of being used for even exercise interventions. Um, and I think that's where this kind of, this can start to, to be applied um, as we move on down the road, we kind of get, we, we grasp uh, this field even more. Um, Cause it is a very relatively new field. I mean, exercise science in, in itself is relatively right. new. Right. Exercise biology is that much even more new. Um, right. Right. And I'm really excited to see how we can uh, apply these pieces um, to your everyday, everyday athlete or everyday physically active individual. It seems like, yeah, you know, from listening to you speak in the last half hour here as we wrap up, that you have a really strong knowledge base of the information, which, you know, as graduate students is extremely important because, you know, your work is, is tied to this for the next, you know, three, four, five years and, you know, down the line following your PhD. So specifically, you know, I know you just finished your first year at UConn, but where do you kind of see yourself, you know, moving forward, you know, the next couple of years at UConn and then also kind of uh, postgraduate? Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I mean, there's always room for improvement. There's always oh, room for learning. Um, so, I mean, this the, the cool thing with this field is that it's it's fairly new. There's always new things coming out. Um, I'm still a learner of the trade, and I'm still kind of have my nose deep in the books, and uh, I appreciate those comments. But um, I guess kind of going forward, uh, I mean, when I left my master's, um, one of the things I talked about with my mentors was the the applicability of a postdoc uh, position and how it could help with research. Um, so I've always kind of had the plan that after PhD, I will more than likely pursue a postdoc position. Um, but I think one of the things that's been really cool about being at KSI is that it's kind of opened up different opportunities uh, for post postdoc or post PhD. Um, I always kind of thought that it was kind of academia or bust for me, and that may not be the case. I mean, uh, there are a lot of uh, government entities that we kind of have a good relationship with that we work with uh, either previously or potentially currently or even um, later on in the future uh, we've had communications with. So, you know, maybe working for a, 
a government piece um, as a muscle biologist working with war fighters and potential resiliency and you know helping our military be the best they can be uh, could be a potential uh, a pursuit of mine down the road. Um, I've considered industry, but it really kind of depends on how I'd be able to fit into that, whether it's maybe a pharmacological aspect or uh, something in regards to um, how exercise and biochemistry may relate to a product. Um, but there, there's a lot of things on the table. Um, definitely, it's going to take a lot of different uh, things to consider, um, you know, being uh, in a relationship with my girlfriend, looking at ge geography, looking at, um, you know, p potential finances. Uh, you know, I've, I've thrown MD at her for a little bit. She keeps swatting me away. Um, but, uh, but, but we'll see. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of open to the experiences and I'm just kind of, you know, enjoying my time and enjoying the things that I'm getting to learn and get to experience. And, uh, you know, we'll have to see what happens in three years. And that, and that's really one of the things that I love, I think, most about, about graduate education as a whole is that, you know, you mentioned when you were speaking there that, you know, kind of opened your eyes to some new opportunities. Those opportunities you wouldn't have been exposed to had you not pursued, you know, a master's degree, had you not pursued your PhD. Absolutely. And I, I think that's, I think, honestly, that's probably the best part of graduate school is that, one, you know, you really get to create your own research line. And, you know, you follow your passions, you work, you know, you work on projects and then it takes you, you know, postgraduate, but then you also meet individuals and, you know, companies and different things like that. And it opens your eyes to other possibilities that you just wouldn't get that exposure to had you not gone on to pursue graduate education. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And especially in a field like exercise science that, you know, it does have a lot of collaborators, it has a lot of contributors um, from strength and conditioning to personal training to research to, you know, biomechanics, motor development, exercise biology, you know, there's a lot of different routes to kind of go through. And, um, and yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's so many things I wouldn't have been introduced to or even thought about, I thought about pursuing if it hadn't been for my experiences uh, so far in upper education. Absolutely. So as we, as we get wrapped up here, Jeb, if, you know, individuals are interested in reaching out to you and your expertise and some of the things that you're working on, what's, what are some of the best ways that they can, that they can reach out to you? Uh, so email, I'm probably on it for too often for my own good. So my email is jeb.struder at uconn.edu. Um, I am on social media, whether it's Twitter or ResearchGate or LinkedIn. Um, you're welcome to kind of collaborate with me on my profiles there. Um, or, you know, just reach out, reach out on the phone. Uh, my office phone is always open. I'm not really there right now. I'm not allowed on campus, but I do get my voicemails directed to my computer. Um, so any kind of collaboration, any kind of questions, especially as a, as a young, uh, a young researcher, definitely more and open to have those conversations. And I appreciate the outlet. Awesome. Jeb, we really, really appreciate you having on and, and talking with us. And I'm glad that, you know, you and I got to, got to catch up a little bit, you know, best of luck and all of your future endeavors, you know, hopefully the research starts up pretty soon and, you know, we're looking forward to seeing what's next for you guys. Yeah. Same for you guys. Uh, RG, make sure you keep them safe, keep them in line yeah. and uh, yeah, stay safe guys, stay smart and uh, you know, good luck with your research as well. Yeah. I appreciate it. Thanks, man. Jeff. Thanks. Thanks for being on. Take care guys.